care for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us I am Kate Willett I'm Julia Clare Julia, I had big cat news this week. Uh, as, I, as I've uh, grown accustomed to updating our listeners on the state of my friends during quarantine, uh, little Pearl is okay now, but she almost died this week, and it was so terrible. Oh um, my god, Pearl is uh, for for listeners who don't know, Pearl is a perfect cat, and she is um, just the the queen of Kate's household. Yeah, and- she she. Pearl is really bendy and she got spayed and she had this little collar on her and, you know, to make sure she didn't take out her stitches. But she's so bendy that she was able to take out her stitches anyways. And Mm. uh, yeah, this was this was not good. Uh, So we had to take her to the hospital um, and it was (laughs) it it, it ended up being like pretty reasonable in the end but the first bill that they quoted us to save little pearl was five thousand dollars and it didn't cost anywhere near that much (laughs) but it was like it was it was crazy i was like we need medicare for pets you know yeah absolutely oh my Uh, god there there is private health insurance for pets which is a scam and it's uh by you know it's it's propped up by big by big pet insurance how is your Uh, week going my week is okay. I was I got a COVID test yesterday and I got my results already, which was it's cuckoo. I'm uh I'm thrilled. I'm negative. Oh, uh, awesome. I was like, thank well, you so you know, much. you're holding me in suspense. Do you have COVID? <laughs> no. Um, um I was such a baby. Maybe maybe the nurse who did my test was just particularly rough, but it did feel I mean, I'm sure most people have been tested by now, but if you haven't, it to me, felt like being waterboarded by a Q-tip. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so uh, unpleasant. Yeah. It's not painful; just is. It feels like you're drowning. <laughs> I don't know yeah, why. it was when when Pearl was uh, when Pearl was really sick the morning be- the night before we were able to take her to the hospital um, in the morning. Um, she was not drinking water, and so we called the vet and the. The vet said that we had to put water in her mouth and a syringe, and I felt like I was waterboarding my cat, which felt so bad. The vet was telling us to do this. It was not just something that I came up with on my own to uh, extract info about Al-Qaeda from the pet. But it right. was very, and very sad. We all know that Pearl is harboring state secrets, and that's really a, a conversation for another podcast. But um, we're, we're glad that Pearl is on the mend and that... Um, and I'm glad that I don't ha- have COVID, but I didn't think that I did. I just, I had to get it because I'm going to have to go back to work in a physical capacity in the next few weeks. Have you been, um, uh, watching the RNC at all? Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I, so I, I watched, uh, I watched some highlights from the RNC last night. There was this woman, Abby Jacobson, who is, uh, an anti-abortion activist. I hate even using the word activist, but. She's nuts. She uh, actually, sorry to be ableist. She sucks. All right. The problem with her is not that she has mental illness. The problem with her is that she's a complete asshole. And uh, yeah, she she said some crazy stuff 
Wait, her, name, again, her name is Abby Jacobson? Um, no, wait, let me see. Let me see. Hold on. I was going to say, isn't it? I was like, that's just from Broad City. <laughs> it's Abby Johnson. You're right. Abby Johnson. I was like, oh my, why does that name sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, uh, no, she's not, not the woman from Broad City. Um, but uh, yeah, Abby Johnson. Um, and she gave uh, a super graphic and disgusting speech last night about uh, the smell of abortions and stuff and you know just oh it's so gross uh, anti-choice um, people are so creepy yeah just ca- and, categorically but, yeah but she's also made some wild ass comments that her adopted brown son should be racially profiled uh oh, yeah because he's like more dangerous than her non-white yeah than her non, uh, that uh, women than should her not be children able, yeah that women should not be mm. able to vote and uh <laughs> yeah uh but it, i mean it was watching the rnc last night it, it made me a little scared because the the thing about it is you know I mean, the DNC, I, I might get some crap for this, but I, I didn't think the DNC was very, um, you know, was very policy heavy. And last night, the RNC, of course, was not either. And obviously Trump sucks. But, you know, let's just say that you were somebody that wasn't paying that close of attention. You know, there, there, there was there were some like good ads. Like there was this one ad, uh, this Trump ad about like, working moms and it was like all these working moms that have worked for him just saying like how great he is for working moms and stuff and it i mean obviously he's not true but um you know i was just i was thinking about the the approach that they're using which is this like phony populism and showing kind of a a uh, yeah like a kind of a fake respect for the working class i i can imagine will potentially resonate with some people i guess just like it did in 2016 and how it it was a very different vibe than the democratic convention and then i see i see i think from from the speakers panel that i for from the the slate of speakers that i saw it just seemed like like the the theme was like these white cultural grievances um and because they had that kid who the maga hat kid who yelled at a a native american man was, oh, God. was one of the speakers. That kid, fuck, fuck that kid. And also the two, the couple who like uh, aimed their guns at a crowd. Those, those two also got speaking slots. So these, like, you know, these are not even like your 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 kooky uh, Republican celebrities, like your John Voights or your Clint Eastwoods. These are like these are cultural. These are like Republican icons of white identity grievances yeah absolutely yeah so that's what i think of i mean i think that that's what is uh it's like it's anti it's 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 anti-cancel culture it's like if if anybody's there was so there's so much focus on cancel culture this week uh at the convention so far which is weird because like who why is your average republican voter so worried about cancel culture i mean you have to be like a little famous or something to be canceled you know Mm -hmm. like it's not i don't know i i was thinking there's obviously such a big conversation about that happening around comedy uh there's a whole like right-wing comedy podcast circuit and obviously like you know 
there's some comedians that have been really obsessed with cancel culture and their specials and stuff. And the the thing is, is being uh, anti cancel culture. These these guys and I say guys because it usually is want to present it like it's you know extremely subversive in some way. Uh, but in it's like no, okay, babe, this is literally a, the theme of the convention to celebrate the incumbent president it's your views are a hundred percent in line with the state and i'm you know i'm not an absolutist about this i'm not i'm not i'm definitely not one of those people that will be like there is no cancel culture or whatever because you know obviously there can be like yeah. this this like impulse for public shaming which is you know sometimes not justified sometimes you see like a, a pile on to someone for you know like like just a a person who tweeted something that was like poorly thought out but they didn't even really necessarily you know mean it and in a terrible way or whatever and and, you know it's like uh yeah so i mean this does happen but it's uh, no but 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 the fact that the the examples that we're that we're using both being at the republican like being at the rnc and also comedians who already have specials. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you're not, like, why are you, so, you already have a microphone. You already have an audience. You, like, how are you complaining about this? Yeah. Yeah. Eh, um, it's pretty wild. Um, but we, we do want to talk about someone this week that, that I think that we're both on the same page uh, should be canceled, at least for now. At least for now. I, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, barring a lot of personal work uh yeah i i would agree with that so okay so uh, many i'm sure that if you're a listener to our podcast you probably heard about this in some uh in some capacity um there is a 19 year old kansan named aaron coleman who ran for the kansas city council um or no, I'm sorry, the Kansas State House District, a Kansas State House District, um, and he won, eked out a, a very narrow win after, um, you know, a pretty a pretty hotly con- contended race with an incumbent. Yeah, and I mean, um, he like let's let's say this guy was <laughs> not who he was. Like, this would be a situation where. If, you know, if this guy wasn't a piece of shit, we wouldn't we there would be something to celebrate about it. Right. Like he he sure. won his race with like a tenth of the funding of his corporate backed opponent, you know, um, took down yeah. a long time establishment figure. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's it sucks that he sucks. Um, but I mean, yeah. OK, so <laughs> let's get to the matter at hand of why he sucks. Uh, so he when he was in middle school, he was 12. He basically extorted a female classmate in some way uh, who had sent him a nude picture. And when he she wanted when he wanted her to send more and she refused, he ended up publishing that nude picture and this girl was 13 um so and he has admitted to this this is not up for debate (laughs) he has admitted this and he said julia i disagree just because he has admitted it does not mean it's not up for debate okay (laughs) yeah that's true uh undeniably true kate excellent point um yeah so (laughs) okay so that is that in and of itself kind of 
ignited this this larger uh, debate about whether or not um, he is a viable candidate for public office. Yeah, because um, so he's, you know, he's 19 years old. He's and, 19. That's that's the thing. If yeah. he were 35, okay. Yeah, um, and, I'm, and you know, he, he hadn't made amends to his victims. Um, this was not... I saw... I think the main thing that we kind of wanted to, you know, know was, like, the the response from some men to kind of reflexively defend him and to present this as an issue of like, Oh wow. You know, like the left, you say that you're, you know, anti-carceral and then here you want to like punish this kid like forever for like a thing he did as a child. It, it It's just not a one for one because even if you're looking, to, even if you, <laughs> even if you're looking at like not being carceral, like, that doesn't mean that people will have no accountability or consequences whatsoever. And needing to take a while before you hold public office is, I think, a pretty fair uh, Absolutely. request. Absolutely. Yeah. He Again, he is 19 years old. I don't think people... Okay, also, I think it's... I'll say that I think it's a little anyone who is that young and I think kind of like has this hunger for power uh, is a little suspect to begin with. He also ran for governor as a write in candidate at 17. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but okay, you're I mean, your prefrontal cortex isn't even fully, which is which controls like rational thinking and impulse control isn't even fully developed until you're 26. That's like that is what it is. So um, he, yeah, he dropped out of the race after, like, he was getting crap for this. Then, you know, from the moment that this story kind of made national news, uh, he had uh, a couple prominent defenders. I think most notably Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald. Are we surprised? Um, we are not. Um, yeah. He- so Glenn, you know, Glenn was posting a lot about it. Uh, interviewed him. You know, and then uh, the kid dropped out, uh, then posted this like this uh, little screed. Yeah, about yeah a screed uh, blaming (laughs) blaming feminism that it turns out. Here's something that's really funny about it. He plagiarized that. <laughs> he pla- he pla- he said he was talking about donatism, uh, which is I guess he type of heresy from the fourth century catholic church where you're requiring that your clergy has to be perfect or something and he actually plagiarized this from a facebook comment that someone made to him and now he's re-entered the race um is yeah he reversed his decision he's yeah saying that he's doing this to, to is saying that he's doing this because of you know, the injustices done to uh, young men, you know, so basically this is kind of like a this is an anti me Too run at this point. Uh, so I just I just really want to really quickly. I want to read the how Glenn Greenwald framed this. And, and I want to say that, like, I was very disappointed. Like, I'm a huge fan of of a lot of Ryan Grimm's writing. I was very disappointed by his initial reaction to this, which was, oh, we're just done with this kid forever. Like, you're not allowed to make mistakes. And that's obviously not what 
anyone is saying. There is a big difference between someone's life being over and them being allowed to hold public office. Those two things are not the same. Yeah, and hold public office a few years later. You know, if he was exactly. 30 years old, I would feel really differently about this, especially because, you know, or even if he had, you know, made amends to his victims, you know, but which the, the, he there was has just not. Uh, yeah, there was just yeah. no growth or self-reflection whatsoever. You know, he's still so <laughs> so the way that Glenn Greenwald had and this was this is an article that he posted for the uh the intercept on the 21st. Um just even the way again, this is about the this is about the uh the sexual predation, if you want to call it that, the, uh, you know, leaking of of a child's nudes, uh, child's uh, sexual images on the Internet. So this is what it says. Aaron Coleman, the 19-year-old progressive who won his Kansas primary, speaks out about his troubled past in promising present. And the subtitle is, in an exclusive video interview, the controversial young candidate from an impoverished background responds to critics. Why, like... It's just automatically setting him up to be a sympathetic character. Um, And again, Kate and I kind of talked about this later in our interview with Gabe. We joked about it. But the idea that like the the working class or the the lower class are this like monolithic group who are okay with like violence against women and yeah or that they, or that or that there aren't women who have been exactly. sexually harassed women are women are such a big part of the working class yeah i mean like, and so you oh know my God. ryan grimm found for the intercept yesterday uh this guy has been his his ex-girlfriend um is uh, accusing him of abuse as recently as last year. I mean, it's kind of I have one thing I thought about this situation is how would this be treated if this child, this kid was a, had a past of abusing animals, right? Yeah, like people I would saw, be yeah. like people would be like, okay, this this is a sign of sociopathy, you know, yep. m- maybe it's childhood trauma, but we really need to make sure that this this kid is is over, you know, whatever was whatever was a uh, causing him to do that before he holds public office. And, you know, it's just been like, it's just been wild to see like people really wanting to die on the hill of defending this kid, particularly here's two reasons why it bothers me uh, a little bit extra. Like one, because some of this, this kid's defenders, um, you know, were some of the strongest voices for, um, you know, calling Biden uh, to account for potentially raping someone, um, Tara Reid. I mean, Ryan Grimm is the one who broke that story on a national level. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't I, I, I don't personally think that Ryan is like a sexist or something like that. It's, you know, I, I think his not, response no, to this is bad. Do I. But, yeah, I think but, that his I think his response sucked. I just I, I was like, I mean, it's the fact that I even held any disappointment for him shows that I like very much like otherwise respect his journalism and his opinion and yeah yeah no i i I agree but you know also you know he he also uncovered in the alex morse story um from a couple weeks ago you know Mm -hmm. that like this that alex morse in this case was being brought down by like these kind of 
by a plot from the establishment to paint him as a sexual predator when he wasn't. And, you know, like to kind of to to show that that does actually happen for real in some cases and then to immediately undermine that legitimate instance with this thing where this guy is really a predator is you know it's just it's just it's such a waste and i also think that one thing that's been really that bothers me is you know obviously there were all of these takes you know particularly i was reading this you know jessica valenti um who is a, a kind of prominent liberal feminist published a, a piece about like the sexism of men on the left and it's like you know we do have there there yeah there are like sexist guys but you know I, obviously sexism is a very pervasive problem in our society and yeah, there's it's just more a, of, it's more of like uh, it's not that the left has a sexism problem it's like the world has do. a sexism yeah, yeah, yeah the world exactly. has a sexism problem yeah and i mean it's like obviously that narrative has just you know really uh taken hold over the past four or five years that the left is somehow uniquely sexist and this like this just gives so much ammunition to the cynics who are trying to further that narrative by having this kind of indeed pretty bad example that they can point to you know and i guess i just feel really frustrated that you know that the guys who are like saying that stuff um that their voices are are given you know so much more attention and seen as representative of the left when in fact there were a lot of you know both women men you know pushing back on this you know kind of saying that this kid was not fit to hold office at this point i mean it's like the idea that there was like somehow a monolith of sexist leftist men that you know everybody agreed and there were tons and tons of people it's not really true there were you know there were a few people who were doing this you know a few a few very loud people uh who get a lot of attention unfortunately have like a lot you know have have large audiences but yeah to ryan Grimm's credit he uh we're recording this on the 26th last night he published um another piece also for the intercept um about you know exclusively reporting about um the allegations that aaron coleman's ex-girlfriend made that are supported by text messages um that are associated with aaron coleman's phone number um, and basically it was, there was like an incident in which Aaron Coleman said that he was interested in having a threesome. And so his girlfriend at the time made a joke saying, oh, I, I'm not really into that, but maybe you can break up with me for a day and you can do that. And he did not like this joke and allegedly choked her, um, and like slapped her and choked her. Um, so, yeah, this to me is a, a guy who, like, needs help. He clearly has some fucking issues, uh, and I hope that he gets the help that he, need. I, that he needs. I don't want him within a mile of public office, um, and I, and, you know, I'm very frustrated by this this entire situation because of course of course you know misogyny and sexism are 
universal problems, universal afflictions. Uh, there are certainly sexists uh, in the mainstream. There are many sexists within like the mainstream neoliberal establishment or whatever. However, um, I do get very frustrated when, you know, an Aaron Coleman's screed was blatantly saying this, but the idea that feminism is inherently at odds with socialism is something that still, unfortunately, is has some sort of hold with some people in on the left. And that is just, um, it's just something that we, we, we can't allow to flourish because it's just not true. We get into this, um, in our discussion with, with Gabe Pacheco, uh, after this, um, but yeah, the idea of like the, the demonization of, of quote unquote identity politics, um, as antithetical to the goals of socialism, um, it's really damaging for them. It's just damaging for everybody. It's, there's no, um, there's no benefit to it. It's just creating more divisions and there is just no fucking evidence that feminism is in any way antagonistic to socialism. Maybe Well, I mean, yeah, I mean it's like it, it you know, it's it's used that way sometimes, but it's like these these dudes who like go off on this stuff, it's like they think that no one is capable of making the distinction between you know, saying that we need more uh, lady CEOs of weapons manufacturers and, you know, no one is allowed to care about sexual assault. It's like, OK, friends, I know. there's a there's a little bit of room in between those two viewpoints. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, no, exactly. I think, yeah, it's like obviously we know that corporate feminism is fake and it's like it's corporate feminism is not real feminism. I don't, that's why I don't even like when I say feminism, I am certainly absolutely not including like capitalistic corporate girl boss feminism. Um, because that's antagonistic to progress writ large, certainly. Yeah. But just, yeah. I mean, the basic ideas of like, you know, women having fucking rights and being, uh, able to, uh, exist in the world without, uh, harassment, yeah, that's not, that shouldn't be, that is absolutely not uh, at odds with the goals of socialism. This is very funny that I just got an email notification from Bernie Sanders and the subject line is in all caps, socialism, exclamation point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, I, I miss Bernie, but. Miss Bernie. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and before we before we uh, close out this this intro uh i do want to acknowledge that um another black man was shot by the police this week um jacob blake um in kenosha and um you know the the fight to defund the police continues um it's very very disappointing that i mean the republicans keep saying that Democrats, Joe Biden wants to defund the police. And in fact, they don't. Um, and that's very disappointing. We we would like them to. We we have to have to press on. Uh, there is no way to um, eliminate police violence, uh, racist police violence without uh, dr- dramatically, dramatically or completely reducing contact between citizens and not citizens like people in the, between people and and the police this is just just going to be 
the results because uh, the police are a, a racist inter- institution. Um, even if there's, you know, individual nice police officers, the, the whole system is, is set up to uh, to foster these kind of encounters. And uh, absolutely. And we, yeah. need, we I mean, we just need a just a complete overhaul and a, a reallocation of this of of their resources, because, you know, as has been said time and time again, the the quote unquote safest communities are they don't have the highest police budgets. They have very low police budgets. They, uh, have, last- they allocate their resources uh, to, you know, better, <laughs> more kind of long lasting social outcomes. Last night at the RNC, one of the speakers was uh, Daniel Cameron, who is the uh, attorney general of Kentucky. And he was talking about Breonna Taylor. But here's the thing. When people tweet arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor, he is the one who has the power to do that Mm -hmm. um, and has not. Um, You know, so it's just it's fucked up. Last night at the RNC, you know, you could just you could see that they were actually making like a a play to in some ways run to the left of Democrats on criminal justice, which is of course bullshit, but would not be possible whatsoever if the Democratic Party was actually good on this issue. Um so, you know, we hope the protests continue uh and um yeah, it's related to what we're talking about today. We talked with uh, Gabe Pacheco, uh, who's a friend of ours. Um, and uh, we, we talked about the uh, what the misuse of the term identity politics and also uh, the erasure of socialists of color, both from history and from the current movement that's happening in the U.S. I think it's one of our best episodes. I'm going to say it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying thank you. You host the show. I say thank you to the guests, but I don't know you. A thank you. This is your show, Julia. Uh, <laughs> all right. We will. Uh, we'll be back. Oh, uh, before we before we go, I want to say that we have a, an awesome Patreon episode this week uh, about QAnon. We're doing a little mini series about QAnon. Um, it's really fucked up and interesting it's and, fascinating it's horrifying yeah we, i've been i've been loving that as well loving to i mean obviously horrified by it but loving to learn about it yeah so check that out with will summer and we'll be having uh, some more folks come on and give us the ins and outs of that conspiracy all right thank you so much bye just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. We are here with our friends Gabe Pacheco, uh, who is someone we've wanted to have on the show for a while. Gabe, thank you for coming on. I am in- enthused to be here. Thanks, Kate, for having me. Thanks, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> We're thrilled. Yeah. Um, yeah, Kate and I have been having, you know, we, you may think that Kate and I just send picks back and forth about our cats which, which is we mostly do. true yeah that's I which mean, is mostly true we mostly do just send cat picks back and forth but we were talking about um you know when we talk about different concepts for for what we want to talk about on the show each week we we both had talked about how we had had read some some good pieces and how we had 
uh, read some authors we really liked and have been kind of thinking about the the erasure of people of color, particularly uh, black and Latinx um, leftists from the the history of leftism in certainly in North America, but um, obviously socialism uh, and leftism are uh, the world over. Uh, movements the world over but um you know we thought mm, probably mm, not the best idea for two white ladies to be talking about the erasure of people of color i mean uh, to be fair when when have two white ladies ever decided to uh to go with the best idea (laughs) (laughs) it's true we don't we just don't have a good track record and i think that that's been well documented i mean the Um, the thing is is like you know when we're sending the cat pics you know, I I know for myself, I'm always thinking about it. You know, how does this compare to other white lady actions I could be taking right now? And I'm like, right. okay, the cat pics still still pretty white lady, but you know, at the same pretty time, be, pretty benign among the, among the least harmful. You know, absolutely. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I I gotta hop in right here uh, during the choir. My favorite thing to do has been sending people frog uh, Instagrams and TikToks. Jesus. So no frog. <laughs> Yeah, no cat pics, but I the frog has become my uh, sort of my my symbol for this time. This this metamorphosis from because it's uh, like from... a it's like a biblical plague. <laughs> yeah, it definitely it is a plague uh, out of like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie uh, with the frogs raining down on us. Um, we love that. Um, <laughs> shout out, <laughs> shout out to Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, one of our many fans. Um, uh, but I love them because you know they're both uh, they're earth and water, earth and water yeah. signs. So you get two of the four, and uh, and and they you know they they transform so radically over the course of their lives. These frogs, they're wow. magical creatures. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I just wanted to add something to the uh, to anybody listening. You can go cats. You can go frogs. It's all good here. I mean, we think Kate and I are partial to cats, and we will <laughs> we will continue to be so. Um, yeah. cats are instruments of of the revolution. We all know that cats are leftists, dogs are liberals, um, <laughs> and that's the law, unfortunately. But. This discussion that we that Kate and I started having that that ultimately led us led us to you, Gabe, um, came from the fact I read this really great piece in the New Yorker uh, that we will link in the show notes. Um, recently, called uh, "Until Black Women Are Free, None of Us Will Be Free," and it's by uh, Kiana Yamahata Taylor. And I read it maybe three or four times. I loved it so much. Um, it introduced me to a movement that I hadn't been familiar with, uh, called the Kambahi River Collective, which was actually, uh, was founded in Boston in 1974. And this was basically a, a group that was an answer to the fact that black women had been excluded from both black nationalism in some ways, most of the leadership of black, the black nationalist movement, you know, Malcolm X, Fred Hampton, you know, obviously most of the leadership in the black nationalist movement were men and the, the mainstream feminist movement, the second wave feminist movement were mostly uh, white middle-class women, mostly dealing with the interests of, of, white middle and upper middle class women, you know, you had the like 
there were there were some there were certainly some um some black women who were prominent speakers i think of like dorothy pitman hughes uh is one of them who's a a prominent black woman in the in the second wave feminist movement but largely you know the two most recognizable figures of the second wave feminist movement were gloria steinem and betty for dan uh two upper middle class educated white women very different i mean they certainly they didn't agree on a lot either um they had a lot of you know you know betty Friedan famously thought that like lesbians shouldn't be included in the <laughs> feminist movement she was crazy <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah um basically the bl- black women felt that their interests were just completely not considered in in either of this movements and especially in the like white feminist movement. So that kind of brought the Combahee river collective, uh, to being. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a, a black feminist, really socialist movement. Um, and I really encourage all of our listeners to read this article. I found it so fascinating and, uh, illuminating. And I always, am like furious whenever I learn about a part of American history that I feel like should be taught in schools, but of course it's not. Um, yeah, it's, so it was kind of like an offshoot of the national black feminist organization. Um, and it, there are a lot of the roots of the concept of identity politics in this organization, but the section about identity politics is definitely the most was the most fascinating to me because it's how we think of it today and how we conceptualize identity politics today is kind of like a bastardized version in my opinion of what it was intended to be and that term was i i think that term specifically was originated by barbara smith who was a member of that yes. collective right yeah, yes. and and I remember I actually learned about Barbara Smith for the first time, uh, I think you know probably last in in twenty nineteen at some point because she endorsed Bernie Sanders. I mean, which makes sense; she's a socialist. Um, and you know, I remember just kind of people talking about how socialism is at odds with identity politics. And, you know, she was like, no, I invented identity politics and uh, (laughs) socialism is not at odds with it. And then even other concepts like um, the concept of intersectionality, I think, was also originated by a member of that collective, Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, So, yeah. uh, So I I just want to, you know, to just kind of really specify what we're talking about here. I'll just read a a short uh, excerpt from the piece that I I really liked about this in particular. Um, So it says, in this way, the CRC pioneered the notion of quote-unquote identity politics, perhaps one of the most controversial and misunderstood terms in all of U.S. politics. In the statement, the authors described, quote, the concept of identity politics in the following way. Quote, we believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity as opposed to working to end somebody else's oppression. In the case of black women, this is a particularly repugnant, dangerous, threatening, and therefore revolutionary concept because it is 
obvious from looking at all the political movements that have preceded us that anyone is more worthy of liberation than ourselves. We reject pedestals, queenhood, and walking 10 paces behind. To be recognized as human, levelly human, is enough. So I have a question about this. Uh, rejecting pedestals, does that mean that I should not go on Twitter and post that black women are going to save us all by voting for <laughs> Joe Biden? Because I've been doing it every day. And, you know, um, I know, Kate, and and I and I, I admire you for your commitment to just to tweeting that every single day. But yeah. um, but it, it does appear that that's what they're saying. So I, I found this really like there was almost like a comforting aspect to reading about this because it's something that I've that I've like felt in my heart for a long time. Every time I see like the vilification of identity politics from both the right and the left, it really um, upsets me because it is not it, it has never struck me as something that has that is at, at odds with socialism. Um, and I think in vilifying identity politics, that further leads to the erasure of people of color and women. And yeah, I guess, Gabe, I would I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Uh, yeah, well, I think I was heavily steeped in the concepts of identity politics coming out of college and was uh, very on the side of them um, in in sort of the formulation of uh, kind of what we're pushing back against, like sort of this representation matters, uh, rainbow capitalism. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, and it was interesting to very recently come across the origins of the term and to see how it was twisted and sort of weaponized against its original meaning. And I have been, like, I was a huge uh, Sanders fan in the last election cycle and um, through and and listening to the policies that he was putting out I was like Latinos love Sanders Latinx people love Sanders it seems like everything he's saying would be lifting up all of these communities that are completely invisible or unrepresented by the status quo mm -hmm. and yet uh, it seemed that the liberal media was finding ways to uh, talk about how he's got a problem talking to women or he's got a problem talking to like young Latinos. Yet I'm watching viral Corridor uh, um, songs and like uh, Ranchera songs by young Chicanos that are like pro, pro Sanders songs. So in the mainstream media, I'm hearing about how he's an old white man who's out of touch. And then yet I'm seeing this vibrant um, movement on the ground where the youth is all with him. So uh, getting back to kind of what you're getting back to this, it's like identity politics was sort of turned into a toxic term <laughs> to me by mm. uh, the liberal establishment. Yeah. Brianna Joy Gray, who was uh, Bernie Sanders press secretary, wrote a really good piece a couple years ago that I read before we had her on the show called How Identity Became a Weapon Against the Left. And in this piece... She talks about a lot, a lot of the, the points that Julia is making about like, you know, how it's how there are capitalism um, and racism kind of conspire to harm various demographic groups um, to widen and cement historical and, and inequities of race, gender, religion, sexualities. 
and but that the way that the democratic establishment wants to talk about uh these types of harms is totally separate from capitalism and i've been thinking a lot about the context lately of two things one is healthcare you know we are in the middle of a pandemic and it's been so it has disproportionately hurt black and brown people i mean the not not just in terms of deaths like the the numbers of deaths are 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 way higher, but also in terms of like the amount of people uh, contracting the coronavirus, uh, the amount of people who are being um, evicted from their homes. And like we just had the DNC like last week and there was a giant focus on addressing um, racism, but, you know, also an absolute refusal to uh, to support Medicare for all. Um, I think Biden is even backing off the public option at this point. And, you know, just the, the there's an insistence on on talking about uh, ending systemic racism without uh, addressing health care, uh, without uh, doing much to address the housing <laughs> crisis. Uh, OK, so I, I mean, through the lens of stand up comedy, um, we we can listen to like Patrice O'Neill was like, hey, I'm uh, 39 on one special. I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, I'm 39. So in black years, it's like I'm uh, 80 years old. I've got like three years left. And then what happened right after his special? He uh, died from uh, complications to diabetes. Uh, Chris Rock has bits where he talks about how, uh, you know, the retirement age for black people should be um, like 20 years lower than that for white people <laughs> because of um, issues like that. If you listen to watch any George Lopez special, everything he talks about is like how bad the diet is in uh, the uh, Mexican-American community and high blood pressure, hypertension. All of these sort of issues are just embedded into the uh, into the comedy. Wanda Sykes, in her latest special, talks about her um, how she I, I can't remember what it was, but she had some chronic pain issue, and she went to the doctor, and they would not give her uh, pain pills because black people are seen as having um, a higher, higher tolerance. Pain tolerance. Yeah, yeah that's right. so fucked. Somebody actually like found a medical textbook that that was in and <laughs> screenshotted it and put it on Twitter that basically like that said someone screenshotted this was like a doctor that basically said like black people don't feel as much pain and there's you know obviously this has like far ranging consequences the uh, maternal mortality rate is so much higher for black women in this country and i was thinking also too about um the erasure of uh socialists of color particularly in um the conversations about um abolition that our society has kind of broadly been having lately. And, you know, we saw uh, at the DNC um, uh, last week, you know, there were, a, there, there was, a, you know, a lot of discussion about like the harms of police violence. And um, I mean, and you know, that's good, but they were completely talking about it as, well, first of all, as separate from, you know, abolishing or defunding the police, but, but also, um, you there, the neoliberal establishment has, um, I think, made a conscious effort to completely uh, disregard the connection between this type of violence and capitalism, which has been uh, a central theme in the work of the black socialist feminist 
writers and activists who are at the forefront of the abolition movement. Uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, uh, Miriam Kaba, um, these women. Angela Davis. Angela, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Angela Davis before them. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Who, who ran for, I, I don't remember if it was president or vice president, but uh, already, uh, you know, a ground groundbreaking first, you know, she beat, she beat oh. Kamala. <laughs> oh, um, I mean, yeah, Shirley Chisholm was also like, yep. yeah, is exactly. that who you're talking about? Yeah, Shirley <laughs> yeah. Chisholm, yeah. Um, yeah, she was the first, she was the the first woman to run for president. Uh, and yeah, had one of the all-time, one of the all-time great uh, campaign slogans, unbought and unbossed. Love, love that. <laughs> Want that as a tattoo. Um yeah, it's. I think what we're what we're coming into is that the the Democratic establishment will will talk about race in kind of a superficial way, and even make kind of allusions to these to these larger movements, but they won't talk about the connection between race and class. Not just that, but that there's a, like a deliberate effort to erase that anyone has been talking about the relationship between race and class. I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, um, and obviously a lot of people, you know, smarter than than me for sure have uh, have talked about like the way that you know Martin Luther King's legacy has been sanitized and the fact that he was a democratic socialist that was regularly talking about. Uh, the harms of capitalism is completely removed from most discussion about him by uh, kind of mainstream white liberals. And, you know, kind of likewise with the Black Panthers, like people talk about them like, oh, you know, Martin Luther King was like the nonviolent civil rights leader and the Black Panthers were violent and kind of completely ignoring that like a giant part of what they were doing was, you know, um, focused on serving breakfast to students and Mm. that it was a a kind of an explicitly socialist or communist organization. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it continues, it continues today. There's a, you know, Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that the way that, you know, the, (laughs) the like exactly two black people we learn about in, in U S history classes, Martin Luther King and Malcolm, Malcolm X, are kind of presented as foils to one another. Um, like Malcolm X being like the more militant uh, of the two. But really, if you look at the history and actually Fresh Air, <laughs> NPR just did, just did a piece about this, about how um, they really, they influenced each other a lot. And um, Malcolm X like they were a lot more similar than they were different. Yeah. So to add on to that, Julia, uh, like um, Martin Luther King comes from a middle-class Southern tradition Mm -hmm. and he is um, pushing back an aspirational professional class, pushing back against um, what is explicit segregation. Right. And through his life becoming more and more radical towards this idea that we have to get rid of poverty as well. Malcolm X uh, is a response to Po- desegregated uh, northern racism. Right. So he, 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 he's dealing with the structural racism that's invisible that exists after you allow both people to both both races to use the water fountain. Mm-hmm. And 
Uh, and then his coming to sort of, they, they both came together at the end in a lot of ways. Be- Malcolm X in his um, adoption of a more global universal perspective. It was his trip to Mecca that I always think about uh, as such a powerful experience for him. And then also bringing that knowledge back to see all of the solidarity that we could all have mm-hmm. together. But they both got to the same place. They both got to the yeah, same place. Yeah, you know? and that's why I think it, it, that's why it's like it's so it's such like a facile and incorrect understanding of both men. It's a misunderstanding of both men to say that they were foils for one another because they ultimately in their uh, in their their personal journeys came to a very similar conclusion that was a lot more radical than the uh, as we've said the the very sanitized disney version of how martin luther king is portrayed yeah and there you know i think like one thing i mean i i am by no means an expert on any of this i am just doing i i've I've been looking more into it and doing some research but uh i was really surprised to learn over the past couple of days like how long uh the tradition of socialism has like, like just, I think that like socialism has very much been presented as something that is, is only for white people. And like, obviously the main uh, proponents of that idea are like white uh, neo-libs who want to portray like the left as, you know, some kind of like, you know, Bernie bro, there's no, uh, this is just actually white privileged people who uh, like Bernie Sanders because they had nothing to lose or something, Um, you know, and then also like there are people on the left that are kind of like, you know, like we see those guys on Twitter that they're like, you know, white dudes who are red pilled or whatever. And, um, you know, kind of talking about the working class, like, like it's all white and like, it's all men. Um, And like, it's all white men who just like, we, who you know we can't expect them to not do racism yeah. or sexism that, that's how we organize workers is we organize them by getting together and doing sexism but yeah uh, yeah that's the, i mean that's that's why kate and i started this podcast we wanted a place where it was safe for us to do sexism yeah there was a i mean the, the peter clark was the first black socialist the first known black socialist in the united states uh who joined the Workers' Party of the U.S. in 1876, um, skipping ahead a little bit. At the turn of the century, um, there were several really prominent black labor organizers. A. Philip Randolph was one of them. There was a, a, a lot of black leftists joined the Communist Party up through you know, the 1930s. It was really active in black communities. Um, in the early 30s, in heavily black neighborhoods, Sometimes 5,000 people could be mobilized to fight an eviction. And, you know, there was this was not like the the Communist Party. Like there was plenty of racism within the Communist Party as well. And, you know, there were white members that were like, oh, you know, we we definitely shouldn't be uh, seen as like, you know, caring too much about racism. And, you know, it's that particularly amplified with McCarthyism, um, like a, a lot of what they there were, you know, definitely um, white people within their ranks that were kind of, it's, it, you know, basically using the same old line as like, we can't focus on this now, you know, but uh, 
but the, yeah, the, uh, the tradition of black socialism and more broadly socialists of color in, in the United States is something that dates back a long time. Like Joe Biden in that uh, interview that he got a lot of crap for um, on The Breakfast Club, you know, saying like, you know, if you're not voting for me, you ain't black. There is uh, it is to the Democratic Party's advantage to present this like the idea that black people are a monolith um, or that um, Latin people are a monolith. And it is uh, yeah, it's just it's just not true. There is a, a long tradition of leftism. That's right. That's right. And and I think of, you know, racism is inextricably tied to capitalism. It's uh, it's uh, both a, a tool of capitalism and also a symptom of it. If it can yes. be both things at the same time, yeah. you know, and in in that, uh, even when you do have people who want to rise up and resist, we're all individuals that all have different starting points. So you might have two or three different progressive or uh, or socialist leaning organizations um, and then the path of least resistance becomes the one to accept the um, the invisible ideology of racism um, and, and what I mean by that is that uh, you'll <laughs> it, 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 the powers that be will definitely shine more light and give more water and allow that toxic, racist version to flourish because mm. it divides us all from um a more uh powerful f- organization gabe you were talking before the show about um the long history of leftism among chicano activists can you tell <laughs> us a little bit about that yeah i mean we can go back so i i just um one thing that uh, I want to jump off from the article, and it says here um, in in the article that we were that we all read. Uh, I think it's like the third or fourth paragraph. It says that the um, organizers were inspired by national liberation and anti-colonial movements from the Algerian struggle against the French occupation to the Vietnamese resistance uh, to the American War, and in that it's like uh, you know Lat- Latin America or the global South. Uh, the place where so many, um, you know, Latin people are coming from, there's a rich tradition of socialism down there. Yeah. That is... Uh, that the United that, States, uh, I mean, just tirelessly <laughs> worked to extinguish. Yeah, yeah. So, and and exactly, Julia, it is the, it is the testing ground, the Petri dish, for all, all of the um, repressive tactics that we're seeing here today in the U.S. They started down there, and if you look at Naomi Klein's work with disaster, uh, in disaster capitalism, in Shock Doctrine, she talks a lot about how uh, Pinochet's Chile was a place where a lot of neoliberal liberal policies were first enacted. But um, before him, in Guatemala, there was a guy named Arbenz. And Arbenz was, uh, in the 50s, was a democratically elected socialist president who was assassinated by the CIA. And uh, Allende was the next in line after him in Chile to also get assassinated by the CIA. And coincidentally, uh, Che Guevara was in Guatemala during the uprise against Arbenez, or not uprise, but the um, reaction. And um, that's when he formulated his idea that there can be no democratic uh, change, that Mm. it has to be done 
through force because the the U.S. government is going to uh, squash any democratic attempts. Well, it's it's, it's also worth noting that um, not to to jump around too much, but but as we were speaking <laughs> about before, it's also worth noting that every single member of the black nationalist movement or like the like black socialist movement was murdered as well. Yes. Um, Fred Hampton, Huey Newton, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. I mean, even, right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> the list, the list goes on. And, uh, and, and the ones that survive, you know, I mean, a cynical, a cynic could be like, well, why did they survive? <laughs> what, uh, what deal did they make with power mm. to, um, to continue to be around and moving? Um, but that, you know, that's just a cynical take there. What I was getting at was this idea that when we have these um, sort of identity, uh, non-white uh, POC socialists, they're drawing from a more third world international uh, perspective. And we're, we're taking, looking at what was happening in Algeria at the time, uh, what, what's happening with these third world liberation struggles because there you actually see um, more vibrant organized socialism. Mm. And you also see that the repressive tactics that the state uh, will use as we accelerate into trying to you know, push progress forward. One person I learned about uh, the other day that I was super excited to learn about um, is uh, Claudia Jones. And she was born in Trinidad and Tobago um, yeah. And she immigrated to the United States um, and was an early black feminist leader in the Communist Party of the United States. I learned about her because um, a couple of a few of the abolitionists that I was looking into cite her as an early influence. And um, yeah, it's just, I I just I was thinking about, you know, how when we learn about the history of the feminist movement in the United States, we often learn about like. Betty Friedan, you know, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, she, she was just completely left out. Uh, I, you know, I, I hadn't heard her name before the other day. Um, she was considered uh, more radical than Marx in some cases um, and ha- has been talking for a long, was talking for a long time about how uh, capitalism, like, capitalism exacerbated uh sexism and racism and how these things were connected uh she was eventually deported from the united states um and uh but yeah she she talked a lot about uh triple oppression and was a really influential socialist feminist um that yeah well, bummed it, i didn't learn about till now <laughs> i mean this is jumping around a bit too but this idea that capitalism exacerbates sexism right will like We'll take NAFTA. Uh, and when NAFTA happened, there was all, right on the southern border of the United States, on the Mexico side, the maquiladoras all started um, to mushroom. And that's like these factories. And all these factories, uh, then uh, they would employ women because women were seen as easier to, um, easier to control, more docile, uh, lower wages. And then what that led to also was just like rampant femicide on the Mexican side of the border. Mm. So 
uh, there are just cases in Juarez and all of these other border towns where the maquiladoras were of just hundreds and hundreds of disappeared young women that would come from villages to to work there and then just disappear. And no one uh, did anything about it. And this is, to me, this um, inextricable link. Uh, it's linked directly to, to capitalism and how capitalism um, then exacerbates all other problems we have right like right. why are why are all these why are all these poor women um migrating to work in these um conditions in these factories why aren't they being paid more why is, why are they the less dead and not being seen as um uh worth uh, f uh protecting and then that's also it's like the u.s is the house and the rest of the world is the plantation it's like this is just right on the other side of our our fence, but it's it is our um, we're divided from seeing them as part of our struggle because of nationalism. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and yeah, because of nationalism, and also just this like, and and we we've touched on this a, a bunch of different times, but yeah, the like rugged individualism that um, that makes every problems seem like or that you know the the mainstream conservative and like neoliberal media make it seem like it can be solved with individual action instead of like systemic solutions uh yeah it's uh <laughs> can't cannot endorse yeah, yeah i think yeah. you know as as we as we come to a close of this like far ranging conversation. I you know, I just wanna say like we Sorry, I didn't stay I didn't stay on topic. No, no, I mean like I mean this is this is a really big topic and hopefully something that we'll continue to explore on the show. But I'm I'm just really struck that, you know, like leftists of color have the the <laughs> one like power has always had uh has always had an interest in claiming that like socialism was uh something that was you know for white people um in kind of you know furthering the notion that um like there there can't be a multiracial working class organizing uh to stand up to capital um and you know, also, there is a long tradition of white leftists pushing socialists of color out of the socialist uh, movement. You know, yep. it's, it's, uh, that's been happening for a long time. It's not just uh, the posters that we see today. Um, and Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, Kate, I, I think a connection I wanted to make between the maquiladoras and any factory workers in the U.S. who are upset at NAFTA dismantling the factories on this side of the border is that... You, there can't be, within modern capitalism, there can't be a, a solid union movement that does not find ways to connect with other, uh, with laborers in other countries. Like, the plight of uh, the workers in the U.S. is, like an auto worker here, is tied to the plight of uh, a young woman working in an auto factory plant right on the other side of the border. Yeah. So they they there there is no like white guys making it. This image of like a like a, a like a white um, factory worker, union guy. He's not going to make it without uh, 
tying his his fate and lot to this young woman also making windshields across the border. Yeah, I com- I completely agree. And also, like, probably one of the more, and, you know, maybe not a lot of people now would know who he is, but, like, Cesar Chavez is probably one of the most prominent um, Latinx American labor leaders. Um, he co-founded the National Farm Workers Association, but, and so a lot of people know who, know who he is, but his co-founder was a woman, Dolores, Dolores yeah. Fernandez. Um, uh, and so a lot of people, I mean, she's, I, I didn't, I certainly w- didn't know who she was when I first learned about Cesar Chavez. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's Dolores Fernandez Huerta. Fernandez. Yeah. So people know her, people might also know her as Dolores Huerta. But also, yeah. she's still alive. Yeah, she's, she's out here. She's 90. Yeah, she goes on Democracy Now! sometimes, which is cool. That yeah. is cool. Yeah, but I, I mean, but we, we've seen time and time again that anytime these these kind of like labor-centric movements are uh, kind of being pushed forward by people of color... Anytime there is, like, like they're they're just the 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 powers that be in the United States have have moved to to squelch them, and especially when again it's it's repeated over and over again when it looks like it could be attracting more people than just like di- like when it could be attracting people of different ethnicities or different backgrounds because then it would be bigger and more powerful. I mean, look at how many of every one of these people who we've talked about today had an, a stacked FBI file uh, because that's what like one having any sort of association with socialism obviously got you, got you in there, but it was doubly so for, for people of color, particularly, um, black socialists i mean yeah. like the the were the reason that like jane fonda and gene seberg had fbi fi- files was because of their association with the black panthers and black socialist movements um, i thought it was because of the exercise videos i thought the fbi was against uh, jane fonda's like jazzercise Things. Jane rules. Actually, well, you you know the the story behind that 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 the, all the profits for that video, which is the best selling VHS of all time, went towards uh, her then husband Tom Tom Hayden Tom Hayden's uh, socialist uh, organization. I had no idea all- Jane Fonda was quite that cool. But oh my god, yeah, no, all the, but I like, knew she, was she cool, made but- the work. She made the workout videos to raise money for that socialist organization that's amazing i remember doing those videos with my mom and as a child uh yeah and uh everybody should watch nine to five hell yeah uh, the movie starring jane fonda yeah jane fonda dolly parton and lily tomlin swish uh uh, pink collar class uh class warfare yeah hell yeah Class warfare for white ladies. <laughs> <laughs> that song still bop. It's a bop. It slaps. It's a bop. <laughs> it slaps. Yeah. So, all right. What? I, I guess you know. In conclusion, 
I get I I don't know. Final thoughts, Gabe. Yeah, I think uh, uh, final thoughts are that everybody should go out of their way and look up the struggles of um, communities of people of color in the U.S. Uh, check out th- and also check out third world struggles uh, everywhere. I, I I remember in this article they talk about how they the uh, this conference they would study the Algerian um, battle for independence against uh, the French. And one of my favorite movies is from 1966, and it's called Battle of Algiers. And every leftist should watch Battle of Algiers. It holds up, and it totally feels like it could have been shot yesterday, even though it's in black and white. Damn. And uh, cool. and it, oh, and here's one other random random thought because I'm just throwing out random things. Uh, August 29th is the 50th anniversary of the Chicano moratorium that happened in East LA. And it was in 1970, this happened. It was a huge march and uh, an all day parade, picnic, um, sort of to, uh, to uh, as a critique against the war in Vietnam and the disproportionate number of uh, uh, people with um, Latin surnames dying in the war. And uh, at that march, the uh, sheriffs and deputies um, attacked the crowd. Uh, they ended up killing three people, one of them being a um, world-class journalist, uh, Ruben Salazar. So that's just a piece of history uh, that, um, and we see now things happening uh, in Wisconsin, right, mm. that are similar. Nothing, nothing has changed. The struggle continues. I mean, so. there, there it is, folks. <laughs> yeah, this has been this has been so awesome. Uh, I know that we we went a lot of different places in this conversation, but Gabe, we really we really appreciate you coming on to talk to and to teach us about uh, about uh, a Stuff. lot of the struggles the struggles that we don't know about. Um, and, but yeah. yeah. And we know that we didn't do this topic any kind of justice, but it's yeah. it's it's definitely this this is definitely something that we hope to continue to explore and have guests on that know a lot more than we do. So thank you yeah. for listening. I uh, appreciate you having me on to just talk, and it was so great to spend time with both of you, Kate and Julia. It was great to spend time with you too. And what's your podcast, Gabe? So people can check that out. Well, I've got a podcast right now with Danny Feltz and David Eisenberg called Ponzi Scream. And on that podcast, we explore white collar crime from a leftist perspective. Uh, and I also have sort of a non-political uh, podcast, which I I can't not be political. It's called Eat, Pray, Judge, and it's a movie review podcast. Oh, my God. That sounds amazing. What's, what's one movie wreck that uh, folks can check out this week? What's the... Besides, besides the Battle of Algiers. Yes. Okay. Well, I think everybody should watch a slept-on classic from the late 70s called Blue Collar. And okay. it stars um, it stars uh, Harvey Keitel, Richard Pryor, and Yafet Kodo. Holy and it shit. Is about, uh, <laughs> what a weird cast. <laughs> and it is a drama. It is probably Richard Pryor's best um, dip into drama. And it's a film about how uh, the bosses and management find ways to, uh, to create, sow seeds of dissent and division in, uh, in unions along lines of race. 
So, hmm. Heard of it. <laughs> Blue. <laughs> do they do that? Do we need solidarity across race lines? I think yes. we might. <laughs> so everybody should see Blue Collar. It's a slept on classic. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Gabe. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Gabe. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.